green earth a great day despite the fact that there is an alarming new study done where else at the university of california at berkeley that says that uh, rich people are less ethical than the 99 percent the rest of us could that be true if it is true is it significant we will get to that later this hour we will also get to a question about how you get people to be more ethical And one of the traditional ways of promoting ethical behavior, promoting community, promoting a better America, promoting more compassion, promoting more of the America we want is to get people back to church. It's something that most Americans, including Americans who are unchurched, say would be a good thing. It's one of the fascinating things in the United States is in the last election, 17 percent of all people who voted, said they never attend religious services. Now, they are disproportionately young. That's why there is a a new book, and it's an important book, and very well done. It's called Got Religion? How Churches, Mosques, and Synagogues Can Bring Young People Back. The author is Naomi Schaefer-Riley. She's been a guest on this show several times before. She is a, a weekly columnist for the New York Post and a former editor at Wall Street Journal, She is also the author immediately before this of Till Faith Do Us Part, How Interfaith Marriage is Transforming America. Uh, Naomi, congratulations on the book, and thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me, Michael. What a joy. Okay, uh, first of all, uh, you are assuming a couple of things about young people that I think are basically incontestable, that young people, particularly single young people, uh, are even those who are raised in deeply religious environments— are often not attending religious services. What's the basic, the core reason that so many people are dropping out of active involvement in faiths in which they were raised? Marriage is the biggest reason. Um, Religious institutions have traditionally relied on marriage to bring people back. You get married, you have kids, um, you want to go find a religious institution. And as Americans put off matrimony longer and longer, the average age now for women is 27 and for men 29, um, we are spending more and more time out of the habit of going to religious institutions. And by the time uh, we do settle down, we may be so much out of the habit that religious life may simply not be a part of our lives anymore. Don't young people realize that uh, churches, synagogues, mosques, a good place to meet uh, somebody you would like to marry, isn't it? I mean, better than a bar. In principle, yes, um, but a lot of churches and mosques and synagogues are having trouble attracting uh, single people. Um, There are a couple of factors. Um, In many churches, uh, there is a significantly lopsided gender ratio. Some churches you walk into, you see uh, two-thirds women and one-third men, so that doesn't look like a great dating market for some people. Um, It it does for the men. But I think also a lot of religious leaders have forgotten how to talk to single people, and, um, you know, they base everything that they say and sermons and, you know, when they're talking about church activities around marriage and family. And I think for uh, young, single, you know, uh, millennials, um, you know, they want to hear that, uh, you know, they have value to add as well. It's not simply, oh, we'll start paying attention to you once you tie the knot. One of the things that you do in your book is you look at programs that actually seem to be working to engage this uh, younger target community that is so frequently unchurched. And I I couldn't help but noticing that many of those programs that you point to 
are at the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, the uh, Mormons. What do they do differently to retain young people? Well, they have something called Young Single Adult Wards, and this is they're, they're pretty much unique in this sense. They have entire congregations that are devoted, uh, that are made up entirely of single adults under the age of 30. And they actually, with the exception of the one person who's in charge, who's typically older and married, um, every single role in the congregation is given to a young adult in that position. And I think that it points to something that a lot of congregations are missing these days. Um, when we look at this millennial generation, we see people who are, you know, living in their parents' basement, who are um, may not be fully employed, who may still be in school and may not be married, and we think of them and we start to treat them as children. But I think what the LDS Church has said is, look, we are going to treat these young adults as adults. We are going to say you're perfectly capable of, you know, organizing community service activities, of keeping the books of the church, um, of teaching Sunday school, and uh, we expect you to step up. And it, it turns out that it's working. Uh, many of these young adults really start to see themselves as more mature as they take on these roles. You have uh, seven suggestions that you put out that uh, are discussed in some depth in your book. One of your suggestions is exactly along the lines that you were talking about, which is send singles signals, which aside from being sort of a tongue twister is, <laughs> is probably a good idea. You write that religious institutions have for too long depended on marriage to bring back young adults who have dropped the practice of faith. And I, what you're saying in part is that if you have been single for a long time, and there are lots and lots of Americans who are single for a very long time before they get married, and uh, my brother, my youngest brother, was almost 40 before he very happily got married, he has two beautiful little girls right now. But yeah, that, that happens with people. So so basically you formed a lifetime of non-religious habits unless you're going after some of these single people, and including, by the way, single parents, right? Uh, absolutely. But I think for, particularly, you know, the single people with no children, I think that um, religious institutions have really said, you know, oh, we'll, we'll be here when you need nursery school. Um, and, uh, and I think that what's happening is we're, we're just losing people in that long period of time between when they leave their parents' house or when they leave college um, and when they do settle down to get married. And I think, you know, these are not only, I think, from a, you know, principled point of view, is it important to figure out a way to embrace people who are not yet married and have children, but I think from a practical point of view, you know, a lot of people who are married and have young children don't have the time to devote to all of the activities that a church needs to run. However, you know, a lot of single people have more time and are more capable of taking on those responsibilities. And so instead of ignoring them, we should be saying, we should, you know, be depending on you more to do this stuff, if anything. One of the things that I actually found that you didn't touch in the book that I kind of was hoping you would and expecting you would would be the, the the problem that a lot of religious institutions have with younger people because they're so tentative in their response to, oh, to doctrine or to tradition. Because what I know from uh, my involvement in the Jewish world is that the most dynamically growing uh, congregations and, and outreach movements for younger people are ones that are pretty firm in their approach. Uh, you you don't mention in the in the in the book 
the extraordinary growth of the Chabad movement all around the world. There are now 3,400 Chabad houses. This is a Hasidic group with lots and lots of young people. In fact, the average age of rabbis, I think, is in their 20s. That's a factor in the Christian world, too, isn't it? That some of the most rapidly growing organizations and denominations are the ones that are very firm in doctrine and very traditional in approach. No, I think that's absolutely true. And these are people, you know, some of whom started out as unaffiliated and have become attracted um, to a more orthodox church or synagogue. Um, And I think that there's a lot to that. I mean, I try in the book to really sort of talk about structural things that churches and synagogues can do, um, because I think a lot of you know, religious leaders sort of tune you out when you just say, look, you're going to need to change your theology or change your dogma in order to attract these young people. I don't think, um, I think that in some cases that might do it, but I think in a lot of cases there are many practical things that these congregations could do um, in order to attract this generation. One of the things they're doing, which is not working, you know, a lot of, I'm sure you're familiar with, um, you know, plenty of synagogues and churches um, that try to spend a lot of money and, you know, sort of engage in these kind of slick advertising campaigns and, and giant events uh, to, to attract this, this young group. And I worry that, you know, in the, in, you know, instead of throwing money at these problems, that we're not, you know, thinking about them um, in a more significant way. I don't, I don't think slick advertising or, you know, better technology are the keys to helping these congregations. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, a community on Facebook or Twitter is not a substitute for real community. That's one of the themes in Got Religion, the new book by Naomi Schaefer-Riley. Give us a call. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. This is The Michael Medved Show. Twenty-one minutes after the hour on the Michael Medved show, Naomi Schaefer Riley, our guest, has written several books about the state of religion in America. Sometimes about the difficulties with uh, religion and young people. Her previous book, God on the Quad, was about what happens to people's religious faith when they go to college or university. Uh, her immediate previous book was about intermarriage, religious intermarriage in this country, and how different different means for handling that reality. Uh, she's also written a book called The Faculty Lounges, which is uh, not a tremendously flattering book about what's going on in colleges and universities among faculty. Her new book is called uh, Got Religion? Question mark, how Churches, Mosques, and Synagogues Can Bring Young People Back. Let's go to your calls. As you can imagine, Naomi, lots of people eager to speak to you. To Dan in Clearwater, Florida. Uh, Dan, uh, actually, Dan just uh, bailed on us. So let's go instead to Matt in Tucson, Arizona. Matt, you're on the Michael Medved Show with Naomi Schaefer Riley. Michael, hello, Naomi. Um, I'm curious, Naomi, is orthodoxy attractive? I mean, in the sense of like my, my oldest son goes to a very traditional Catholic college, Franciscan. And those young people there seem very intense and very much involved in what they do. But then again, they're a subset of a subset because they come from our families. 
in terms of traditional Catholic, traditional Jewish, traditional Protestant, I mean, is orthodoxy more attractive or compelling to young people than, say, Unitarianism, for example? Naomi? Well, yes. I mean, Michael's right that those are the places where uh, it's growing. Um, but I think that there is a whole sort of vast sea out there in between orthodoxy and, let's say, Unitarianism. Um, and I think a lot of those institutions are trying to figure out a way to engage this generation, um, you know, to revitalize their institutions. Um, you know, so for instance, I, I went to um, an evangelical church in New Orleans. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly not uh, on the most orthodox end of evangelicalism, let's say. Um, but one of the things that they have really embraced is the idea of having a community-based religious institution. Um, the young people there um, really think that it's important to, and obviously you'll recognize this from, you know, Orthodox Judaism and obviously more traditional Catholicism. The young people there think it's very important to run into the people from your church or from your synagogue on a daily basis, not just on Sundays. And so it's sort of a rejection of this um, boomer idea that we should travel all the way across the city in order to get to the sleek mega church, you know, that has the best coffee shop and maybe the best preaching, um, and, and sort of dig our heels in, in a good way, in, in, in our real neighborhood, and run into these people on a daily basis. It, it provides more accountability. And so I think, you know, these are the things, aside from simply, you know, talking about um, doctrine, which is obviously hugely important to these institutions, um, but kind of structural things and ways that they can attract this generation um, uh, that are more practical, I think. I appreciate your call, Matt, very much. I, uh, Naomi, you, he mentioned Unitarianism, and, and I, I mean, I, I looked recently. The, the numbers of Unitarians, it's, it's, it's almost a dead denomination. You're talking about yeah. below 200,000 people in the whole country. And yeah. it used to be a major Christian denomination. And I would put on the table, and you can agree or disagree, my argument about what went wrong with Unitarianism and a bunch of other denominations as well is they substituted politics for religion. It became such a liberal denomination where the big emphasis was on, quote, social justice, unquote. And whenever a religious denomination does that, I mean, you can take your politics straight. You don't need to go to yeah. church for it. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's a very important point because what the religious institutions that I looked at that are successful, what they're doing is they're offering young adults something distinctive, something you can't get the rest of the week and something you can't get from the other things in your life. So it it seems to me that, you know, politics is something um, that you can get in the rest of your life. Even uh, even community service is something that many of these young people sort of participated in in high school or something like that. So simply kind of volunteering at the soup kitchen, that's not something you need to belong to a church in order to do. Um, many of the young people I talked to had participated in a kind of more intensive service where they volunteered or worked for almost nothing for like a year or two. That was a religious experience for them. But I think the, the most successful of these institutions are saying, look, we are offering something different. We're not just another kind of thing that goes in and out of your life in your 20s. We are, we are here to stay. Let's go to Lisa in Westminster, California. Lisa, you're on the Michael Medved Show with Naomi Schaefer-Riley. Hi. I was wondering if the expected donation level at, at some houses of worship, I've seen this more in some denominations than others, uh, but in, in general, the amount 
people are expected to give is one factor that makes religion skewed toward older, settled, established, married with kids, which often goes in hand in hand with when you're more established financially. Great question. Great question, Lisa. Uh, Naomi? I think that's uh, that's true. And one of the things that certainly happens among Jews is, um, you know, you get to, you know, whatever age, 25, 27, you want to join a synagogue and you look at the bill and you decide, oh, this is not something for me. Um, and I think there is a kind of sticker shock that goes on. Now, I think the churches that do, do it well are the ones that try to bring up children um, in the idea of philanthropy from a very young age. Again, to go back to the Mormon church, starting at the age of eight, you're expected to tithe, that is, 10% of your income to the church um, from your allowance, from your summer job, whatever it is. And I think by the time you get to be an adult, that is just a number that you take for granted. But for many people, that is not the case um, by the time they get to be an adult. Um, And so many young adults, you know, especially those who are unemployed or underemployed, uh, do have a sense like, oh, um, you know, religious institutions are for people who are settled and who have more money than I do. um, but I think religious institutions also need to figure out a way to welcome these people in and hopefully use their time, perhaps, instead of their money as a resource. Last caller to <laughs> Annie in the Bronx. You're on the Michael Medved Show with uh, Naomi Schaefer-Riley. Hello, and thank you to the both of you. Um, um, it's a suggestion that I have more. Um, I was wondering if, uh, considering that today's youth has to deal with the, fu- the fusion of um, uh, faith, politics, and science. How about uh, in the preachings? And it would be more of a teaching. I, 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 I will take Jesus before the mystical aspect is attributed to him, where he's Jesus Christ. When you look at, at a figure like Jesus, who historically and politically and on all levels is a very interesting story. Okay, from Herod's quick, pilot. quick, was- quick response from Naomi Schaefer-Riley. Well, I mean, I think that, um, like I said, the, the, the book is sort of trying to um, offer many congregations practical ideas for how to attract this generation. Um, and, you know, maybe in, for some it's talking about, uh, you know, theology differently. But for a lot, I think that there are things that they can do without necessarily changing their messages. Uh, Naomi, if you can hang on for one more segment, there's so many more people who want to speak with you. We want to get to that. Uh, Then we are going to get to the question, is it true that rich people are less ethical? We'll get to that and more coming up. The Michael Medved Show. MichaelMedved.com This is The Michael Medved Show. And we're talking about spiritual journeys. Uh, How do you lay out a path, a highway, to uh, get young people back into church or synagogue? With Naomi Schaefer-Riley, her new book, Got Religion, is subtitled How Churches, Mosques, and Synagogues Can Bring Young People Back. Uh, Naomi, with your permission, let's go to other callers from all around the country to uh, Marion in Honolulu, Hawaii. Marion, you're on the Michael Medved Show with Naomi Schaefer-Riley. Hi, Michael. Uh, Yeah, I wanted to comment. Uh, I happen to be a young evangelical. I'm in my mid-30s, 
And I think something from my generation that we would want to voice is that I don't know if it really matters what the structure is. We want to know that it works. And I think that one of the tragedies in America is the watering down of orthodoxy and the watering down of the message to try to be culturally relevant. I think we need to be relevant, but we also we also need to be dynamic. And I just wanted to see uh, what your speaker, if, if she would agree with that or if that's the trend that she's seeing nationwide. Great question. Thank you, Marion. Uh, Naomi? Yeah, I, I don't think that the, the, the institutions that are engaging young adults are watering down the message. Um, but I think they're, um, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, I think some of them are getting back to basics. Um, I think um, there is, uh, in this young adult generation, sometimes less tolerance for what they see as um, more minor denominational differences. I think um, particularly across evangelical denominations, there is a sense of um, we need to be more unified and focused on the things that unite us rather than um, smaller doctrinal issues that may divide us. Yeah, I'm always struck Um, by the fact that there are a lot of uh, Christian denominations that are rapidly growing to say we're just Christian or we're Bible churches. Yeah, without, without... and I think that I don't, I wouldn't say that they're necessarily um, watering themselves down. I would just say that the young people really do want to focus on the things that unite them rather than things that divide them. And I let's... and I don't I wouldn't call that a watering down. Let's go to Amy in Philadelphia. Amy, you're on the Medved Show with Naomi Schaefer Riley. Hello, I was just uh, believing that since I'm a 26 year old, I actually still live with my parents due to this economy. And I'm actually a private school teacher. So along with my income, which isn't that great since it's private school, I've picked up a second job. So when on Saturdays and Sundays I'm working a double at a restaurant, it's very hard for me to even try to get towards church just because that's my one or two times I can sleep in. That it's almost irritating when my parents kind of give me the, all right, we're going to church, are you coming? <laughs> uh, Naomi, what do you have any recommendations for Amy? Well, I, I mean, I don't. Have, I, I'm not going to tell you what your parents tell you. <laughs> you should get up and go to church. No, I. I think that um, you know there there certainly are young people in your position. Um, on the other hand, I would say on the whole, um, most young single people probably tend to have slightly more time for religious engagement uh, than many you know married people with you know with little kids and jobs. Um, so I think you you may be in the minority in that sense. I'm, I'm sure that you're working hard and, and it is difficult. But one of the things that I think religious institutions that are successful are saying is, look, you know, we're here to provide you with something different. You know, we're, we're not, we don't want to be just sort of part of your grind. We want you to use this time to sort of take take this time out and, you know, and, and refocus. And, and focusing on uh, getting young people back is the job of the book Got Religion posted on our website. When we come back, Focus on our rich people unethical. Michael Medved. You're listening to a replay of the Michael Medved show as your cultural crusader is finishing up his last of the fall holiday observances in the Jewish tradition. He'll be back soon. No need to fret. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy this best of material and a reminder you can access hundreds of our previous shows when you become a Medhead at michaelmedved.com. 
one of the reasons it seems to me that young people tune out of religion is they often associate religion with something other than ethical behavior, that they don't understand that that basically, and this is true for all Christian denominations, it's true for all Jewish denominations, uh, ethics, the, the way that you deal with your fellow human beings is crucial, crucial in terms of leading a religious life. Uh, these are some, some of the prophets in the Old Testament were concerned about. You can bring all the sacrifices you want, but uh, pray to God all you want. But if that doesn't lead to a more uh, ethical form of behavior, well, then you're falling short. It's a very clear message. Prophet Amos, for instance, is associated with that. But um, here now comes a study from psychologists at the University of California at Berserkeley. They have conducted seven studies involving nearly 1,000 participants from college students to senior citizens. And the result of that study, the conclusion they've reached, is that the rich are less ethical than people who are middle class or poor. Although the scientists concede, reports ABC News, that there are exceptions to this rule, quote, the really well-to-do have lost a little of their moral character. So says psychologist Dasher Keltner, who is co-author of a paper that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Keltner, who led the research along with fellow psychologist Paul Piff, I'm sorry, that's his name, um, said his inbox has been jammed with feedback from working-class citizens who say it's about time someone paid attention to this problem. Uh, People are just feeling there's an imbalance in our culture, said Dr. Keltner. Now, a lot of this is based on one study. I mean, let me describe the study to you. What they did is they went out and they posted a bunch of students, probably grad students who get some kind of credit for it, at four-way intersections in the San Francisco Bay Area. And these were intersections where it is state law in California to yield to the first vehicle to reach the stop sign. Okay, by the way, by this standard, everyone in Seattle is ethical because it is a, I mean, this, is, this, this town is famous for that. But in, uh, in, in the city of Seattle, you, you usually wait for an engraved invitation before you go at a four-way stop. And it is kind of funny. I mean, you see people waving, oh, no, you go first. After you, Alphonse. After you, Gaston. People are very nice about that here. It's one of the things I like about this town. San Francisco, not so much. Because what they found is that the people who ignored state law and zoomed off first tended to be people who are driving expensive cars. Drivers of expensive cars were four times more likely to cut off another vehicle and ignore the right of way than drivers of cheaper cars. The most flagrant offenders of all, uh uh-oh, Mercedes drivers. Okay, in another experiment, 26 drivers of expensive cars blasted through an intersection while ignoring a pedestrian who had entered the crosswalk. Another violation of state law. Some 426 cars were surveyed in these two experiments. Okay, Uh, first of all, there's one thing that I would question about this very directly, which is the association that people who are driving fancy cars are all rich people. I I was just speaking with Jeremy, uh, who knows someone 
who is not rich at all and never will be rich, in fact, has very irresponsibly gotten a very expensive car um, while he's working at a job where he can't afford it. Now, obviously, someone who is stretched out because he cares very dramatically about having a flashy and expensive car is going to be very different from uh, what's described in The Millionaire Next Door. If you go back to that book, that will show you that people who are really good at accumulating wealth, people who are really good at, at developing some kind of resources and building their family's finances, will often not squander a, a huge amount of money to, to get a, uh, a hot new Tesla, for instance. You're listening to a Best of the Michael Medved Show. We'll be right back. This is the Michael Medved Show. A lot of this is based on one study. I mean, let me describe the study to you. What they did is they went out and they posted a bunch of students, probably grad students who get some kind of credit for it, at four-way intersections in the San Francisco Bay Area. And these were intersections where it is state law in California to yield to the first vehicle to reach the stop sign. What they found is that the people who ignored state law and zoomed off first tended to be people who are driving expensive cars. But is this a, a strong indication? I would guess that a lot of the people who are waiting at these four-way stops, who are driving more modest vehicles in the estimation of these researchers, were actually quite well-to-do. I mean, first of all, you have to be well-to-do, right, to live in San Francisco? I mean, this is not a, a city that is, is um, amenable to poor people right now. The, um, uh, the, the whole idea, this is another experiment that they did. Participants were asked to hold a jar of wrapped cookies while the psychologist left the room. But before the psychologist left the room, they were told the, the cookies, it's actually candies, pardon me, they're candies that were for children in a nearby lab. But uh, that was supposed to be the experiment. You're supposed to hold on to the candies. We're going to bring the candies to kids in a nearby lab. But if you want to, you can help yourself to some of the candy. And, and here's what they found, is participants who had been primed beforehand to think that they were wealthy. In other words, when they were told by the researchers, you know, you have a lot more resources than other people. You're doing pretty well. They were much more likely to eat the candy to take it, which they were permitted to do. And you see, this judgment that says that, okay, you were told you could eat the candy, but you were supposed to bring it to children in the next room later, the judgment of the psychologist conducting this uh, survey, this study, so-called, was that it's unethical to go ahead and help yourself to candy when you were told you could. I, I, I do not understand this. Well, I do understand it. This was this was a setup. They were attempting to show that the rich rich people are only rich because they're unethical, or because they are rich, they become unethical. I uh, I happen to believe that there's one very very good reason why it's not true that wealthy people are by nature more unethical. 
or that wealth makes people more unethical. I'll tell you why I know this not to be true in just a few moments. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. That's 1-800-955-1776. Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. Clint Eastwood plays an aging rodeo star who accepts an odd assignment to reunite one of his longtime bosses with his teenage Mexican son, which leads to a dramatic, sometimes dangerous journey in Cry Macho, now in theaters and streaming on HBO Max. You get too angry. It's not good for you. You used to be strong, macho. I used to be a lot of things, but I'm not now. Well, Eastwood still is a skillful actor, director, and producer. But the movie, sentimental and touching as it is at points, seems more manipulative than magnificent, with a romantic subplot that makes little sense. Eastwood is one of Hollywood's all-time greats, so even though this adaptation of a novel from 1975 seems occasionally tired and tiresome, it's still entirely watchable. Two and a half stars for Cry Macho, rated PG-13. This feature brought to you by the Thank Heaven Foundation. This is Michael Medved at michaelmedved.com for Town Hall. A study at England's University of Sussex warns those who snack while watching television or playing video games are more likely to overeat, greatly increasing risks of obesity. You're less likely to be able to tell how full you feel, Professor Martin Yeomans explained. You're more likely to keep snacking. This is important for anyone wanting to stay a healthy weight. Well, the conclusions of the study might seem obvious, but still convey an important message about the hours we lavish on screens, including our obsession with social media. Few people feel satisfied after just a few minutes of screen time. Social and entertainment media are deliberately designed to encourage you to keep watching, to keep clicking, to always yearn for more. Nothing in our screen engagement promotes feelings of contentment or fullness. Perpetual hunger characterizes most addictions, including our often thoughtless indulgence in all forms of media diversion. I'm Michael Medved. Introducing the all-new My Slippers from MyPillow. Two years in development. Designed to wear indoor, outdoor, all day long. Made with my pillow foam and impact gel to help prevent fatigue. And made with quality leather suede. For a limited time, you can get 50% off the new My Slippers. They're super comfortable, and you'll like them so much you'll want to get pairs of them for the entire family. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use promo code MEDVED. That's promo code MEDVED, M-E-D-V-E-D. You'll also get deep discounts on all my pillow products, like the Giza Dream bed sheets, the mattress topper, and towel sets. Call right now, 1-800-320-6280. That's 1-800-320-6280, and use promo code MEDVED. Or go to the web at MyPillow.com. The all-new MySlippers from MyPillow. 55 minutes after the hour on the Michael Medved Show, I want to tell you why I think that this uh, study, which is uh, eagerly reported on, of course, by ABC News uh, from the University of California at Berkeley, saying that rich people are less ethical. By the way, if you agree with that, if you think that rich people are less ethical, then uh, give us a call, 1-800-955-1776. The reason that I know this to be untrue is basically what you would consider to be ethical behavior, which has to do with reliability, honoring other people, uh, basically treating other people decently, being 
fundamentally honest. Uh, all of that stuff uh, tends to produce good results in terms of the bottom line. It is. I mean, the the one of the sayings in the Bible is that your ways are pleasantness, your paths are pleasantness, and talking about biblical law, meaning that you get rewarded for doing the right thing. And I do think that life works that way generally. But if you don't believe me, think about the converse. People who behave unethically, who cheat, and take advantage of other people and shout at people who slander people regularly, you can have a short run and and maybe you can do reasonably well for a time. But how'd that work out for Bernie Madoff? And generally, unethical behavior does not lead to wealth. And part of what I hate about this study is it's that, that same idea that people who have made a bit of money uh, are are there because they're cheaters. There's no research, economic research, that shows that to be true. And this psychological research is kind of childish and nonsensical. Joseph, Atlanta, you're on the Medved Show. Hi, Michael. Hey. I enjoy your show. Um, thanks for taking my call. I uh, Just from my personal experience driving... In northern Atlanta, like in the Roswell area and uh, Riverside Drive, sometimes, sometimes I find that people are don't notice other drivers as much. It's like people are driving very fast. Um, but that's, I mean, that's just personal experience. My feel, my gut feeling is that people of very low income or very high income levels are going to tend to be less ethical or give into the temptation to be less well, ethical. Well, this is, uh, let me let me just jump in, because when people talk about middle class values, they're talking about the values of people who haven't made all the money they want to make, who are trying to get ahead and trying to discipline themselves accordingly. At the same time, they haven't given up all hope. For the very poor and the very rich uh, you could say that there is less of an imperative for ethical behavior because you already feel so secure or you already feel so hopeless that you may not be led in that direction. But the idea of associating wealth with unethical behavior, that's a smear and a stupidity for this greatest nation on God's green earth. This is Michael Medved at michaelmedved.com for Town Hall. The current anguish over racial justice has been punctuated by intensifying demands for monetary reparations to the descendants of enslaved Americans. The prospect of arranging appropriate compensation for uncompensated slave labor that ended 155 years ago remains wildly impractical. But it also goes against the nation's highest ideals. America has always been the land of fresh starts and new life, where you're not judged by who your grandparents were or where they came from. To the greatest extent possible, your progress in life should reflect your own efforts, not your family's past. Slavery reparations emphasize the opposite idea, assigning tax-funded payouts based not on who you are, but on who your great-great-grandparents were. Joe Biden has already expressed support for a commission to evaluate slavery reparations. If this ill-advised effort becomes the a American major issue, people will rightly reject a program designed to accentuate, not narrow, racial differences. I'm Michael Medved.